You're listening to New City Sermon Podcasts. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep into God's Word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of His Kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. Uh, welcome, New City. I'm the fill-in guy this week, so, yeah. And then John, John happened to, like, single this Sunday out, knowing that it was, uh, it was uh, uh, daylight saving time, right? So we, and then we all lose an hour. It's not, it's not, it's not right. It's not right. Uh, I'm going to have Jody actually read for us this morning. Um, he's a friend of mine, and we're going to be in the Galatians chapter 3. So he's going to read from 15 to 29. Uh, Galatians 3, 15 through 29, it says, uh, Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Thank you, Jody. All right, let us pray. Lord, we pray that we would uh, be attentive to your word. We ask, Lord, this morning that you would open your word to us, open us to your word, and that you would do a work in us. In your name, amen. Okay, if you've ever seen the movie Dunkirk, it came out a few years ago, um, you appreciate the story, okay? So, Uh, It's a true World War II story of about 300,000 British and French troops uh, stranded on the beaches of Dunkirk, and they had the entire Nazi army uh, at their back. 
And they had to cross the English Channel without any ships, no planes, nothing. And so in a sense, they were awaiting for a, a miracle. But uh, I'm not going to give you the, the end of it, but if you've ever seen the movie, I, I think what, you, what I find most impressive about it is that you can take a war movie and you could retell it in such a radically innovative way. Um, and so that's what happens. This story is kind of told from three perspectives uh, over three different periods of time, uh, from the land and from the sea and from the air. And, and the unique thing about this movie is that there's not much dialogue in it. And the thing that pushes it forward is this like intense musical score by this guy Hans Zimmer, who is the composer. So, so if you don't pay attention, or if you if if you're not attentive to it, you could actually miss what's happening uh, because it's coming from this tri-perspectival point of view, uh, and then it all comes together at the end of the movie. So we want to take that same approach this morning. We want to look at the gospel from a different perspective. Uh, John spoke last week um, and taught that faith in the gospel promise highlighted um, for us the fact that the law was never meant to save. Uh, And then he spoke about the fact that uh, we're under the curse of the law because if you try to keep the law, um, you'll realize that you could never obey it. So if you can't keep one law, then you're guilty of um, disobeying, disobeying the entire law. This week, again, we want to look at a different perspective, and we want to come at it from the perspective of the law. And we want to ask the same questions that Paul would ask, that we would ask, if the law wasn't meant to save, then why put the law there in the first place? Why would God establish a law if it was never meant to make us righteous? Another question is, is, did God make a mistake in giving us the law? Is it something where... He would say to himself, it's not working, they're not following it, should I scrap it and come up with something better? Well, that's a question we want to kind of wrestle with in the text, and I I hope this morning that we'll see that the law, while it's good, has its limits, and we'll see the necessity for the law, and that it's not just for Jews. Um, We talked about the law being the law of Moses, but Why it matters to us is the fact that this law, whether it's the law of Moses, uh, is applicable to us whether you're a a believer or a non-believer, whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious. Why? Because if you go with that law, you'll find out even if you throw it out, we're still a law to ourselves. You might call it the moral law, but we still have a law to ourselves and we don't keep that. And it's only then that we get to see the goodness of the gospel. And so let me just kind of dive in. Um, the first couple verses speak of a lot of history, and so let me kind of backtrack and talk about the promise given to Abraham and kind of defining what that means, okay? It's been said that the nature of promises is that they remain immune to changing circumstances, meaning that regardless of the different seasons or phases of life, The promises are unchanging. Now, some folks may say, uh, or end up saying something, and and at the end of that, they'll say, uh, I promise. And they'll use words carelessly, just like, I love you, uh, and we'll just be like, yeah, sure, right. But, But we shouldn't do that when we approach God. See, God, his word is unchanging. 
irregardless of circumstances. Not only that, but God is in himself unchanging. And so the same God that speaks to these characters, these people in this time in the Bible is the same God that speaks to us today. He is worthy of our trust. If you remember the storyline from the Bible, God makes a promise to Abraham. What is this promise, this this promise to Abraham that is spoken about? Well, on a few different occasions, in the beginning, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, um, chapters 12 and chapter 15, God visits with Abraham. At this point, Abraham isn't Jew nor non-Jew. He's just wandering. And God visits with him and says, I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Although he is old of age, and at this point, he has no child. And so Abraham was like, dale. But... There's an issue with that. Oh, I'm sorry. For my non-Spanish speakers, that means I got this. I got this. Um, but there's an issue with that. He's, he's old of age. How does this happen? Well, God lets a, a, a little time kind of carry on and, and again visits with him and says, I'm going to bless you, and by this time next year, you're going to have a son. Dale. But his wife is just like, yeah, sure until God actually calls her out on it. Like, why'd you laugh? She was like, I didn't laugh. Bro, you laughed. And yet that time the next year, they would have a son, Isaac. And this begins that promise that God had established with Abraham, that all the nations would be the children of God. That's what Abraham means. It was Abram, and then he was formerly known as Abram, and then his name changed to Abraham, which means in the Hebrew, the father of many nations. And so that God's plan was always that people would be children of Abraham, but more than children of Abraham, Abraham they would be children of God, since it's God that gave the promise to Abraham. And so when we talk about this promise, what is this promise that Paul is holding out? That, it's, that in the end, we would be children of God. Fast forward to the biblical storyline, some 430 years later, and then we find out that Moses receives the law uh, by God. So Moses kind of successfully rescued the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, and they're awaiting at this certain place for God to give them further instructions, the law, Okay. But what about this promise? It says that the promise remains immune to changing circumstances, and yet now the law comes, but it doesn't change the promise. So the promise came to Abraham way before the law came to Moses, and God gave them to both. But why would, call, why would God call two different plays? Why would God establish a promise with Abraham and then institute the law through Moses. Well, that's what Paul seeks to address. If you go to verses 19, Paul asks the question, why then was the law given at all? And then in verse 21, he's asking the question, is the law opposed to the promises of God? So if the law is there, why? But also, is it contrary to the promise? 
So if we think about this, let's, let's backtrack again when we talk about Moses. So John last week taught about Moses and the law and how it came and how we could never perfectly fulfill it. Uh, but if we think about Moses particularly, just, just real quick, the, mo- the law that, that comes through Moses, was Moses ever fully obedient to the law? If you look, if you read the story, you find out he, he's not, right? So the bearer of the law cannot even keep the law. But, but even if we go back further from that, if we go to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, God gave Adam and Eve one law, right? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And could they keep that? No. So, so if God gave a command and Adam and Eve couldn't keep one law, and then he gives the law to Moses, which is some 613 different laws, and Moses couldn't keep that, then logically, what makes us think that we would keep the law? We can't. The law was never meant to be the way one becomes a child of God, and yet the law was limited, although it was necessary, because it was a law that God used to show his people how far they fell short of his standard. It's why skeptics and atheists want nothing to do with religion because they see religion as a form of controlling behavior. And who can argue? But irreligious people have laws too. Think about it. Think about any time you told somebody what they should do in a given situation. Think about the time that you would tell people what you ought to do. Think about the time that you told somebody, I would never do this, right? Think about something that you said, this is what you do. So what's interesting about our laws is that if we really pay attention, we find out that we can't even keep our own laws. Case in point. Imagine all the times that you told somebody what you ought to do, what you should do, what I do, what I would never do, and God were to replay all of those laws at the end of your life when it's all said and done, and he were to judge you by your own law, you could not keep it. You would find out that you couldn't keep what you said to other people. So not only do we we not measure up to Moses' law, but we don't measure up to our own law either. And why is that? Well, allow me to draw from another cinematic picture. Um, Have you ever seen the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the the recent one, right? The second installment of that was called Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, right? And the main character in this movie is Caesar. He's the most intelligent out of all the apes. Um, And he's leading this ape village and they're surrounded by a dying human race at the cause of a virus. And so basically his, his good friend, Koba, is his second in command. And they bump heads because Koba believes that they should go to war with humans. Seeing humans being destructive and violent. Sorry, humans. And then Caesar was raised under the care of a kind, gentle human, and so he actually thinks that they should live at peace, but to themselves. And there's this point, this climactic point in the movie where Caesar's son finds that his father had been shot, but he's still alive, and thinks that it was done by humans. 
Caesar reveals that it was actually Koba that shot him. And that Koba then framed the humans so that apes could go with, to, to war with them. So Caesar confesses to his son that they always saw apes, or they always saw humans as the oppressor and that, that apes were better than humans. But then he saw that apes were just like humans and that the evil wasn't out there, it was actually within. And the thing about the law is that it's not oppressive, it's what's within that gets to us. It's our sin. It's the sin of the human heart. In verse 22, it says that everything under the law was, was under the control of sin. So everybody, every body on this earth was under the control of sin and that the law exposed that. It, it's the sin that resonates and it's the sin that plagues us. To kind of put it a point, it, it's not... The sin is not just breaking a law. It goes much deeper within. It's our rebellion against authority and anything that's not yourself, including its laws. Keller says this, Tim Keller says this about sin. If sin is not just breaking the rules, but putting yourself in the place of God as savior, Lord, and judge, then everyone is guilty of sin. The law condemns us because it was the law that exposes our sin for what it truly is. So the law instructing our lives only really magnified our sin. It cannot bring about righteousness, much less help us to become the children of God, which leads us to the limiting of the law. Why is the law limited? Well, the first thing is that the law cannot transform the human heart. The law is limited in that it commands us to obey, but it cannot actually give out the desire for us to obey. In other words, the law says, don't sin, but it cannot make us want to not sin. It gives us the standard, but it cannot give us the desire to follow through with it. In a sense, the law is a bunch of you have tos. If you wanna be like God, you have to do this. The law would say something like stay off porn, but it cannot give us the desire to obey it because of our sin. We want to gratify our longings and the flesh, but does that mean that the law is bad? Well, well no, not really, but it's incomplete. If you, you see this, you see this in politics, that politics will, will never bring out a perfect world because the laws seek to control our public behavior, but they cannot legislate the human heart. And that's true of whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious. We see this on a local level, don't we? Think about it. In, in the 50s, you had the integration of public schools. In the 60s, you had the, the Equal Voting Rights Act, right? In the 70s, you had equal opportunities for housing. All of these laws sought to aid in the inequality amongst ethnic lines, but did they ever really end racism? They can eradicate the public sphere, but they cannot change the, the hatred and the rage that exists in the racism of the human heart. 
Think about those that struggle with addiction. If you've ever been addicted to anything. You, you see the law given against people of substance abuse, but does that ever really make you change your behavior? That addiction is still there. The withdrawal symptoms are still there. The law tells you to do something, but it cannot give you the desire to follow through with it. So are our laws bad? No, they're, they're, they're good. They, 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 we need the laws. They do a good uh, job at limiting the crime and chaos we're all capable of, but they're limiting in that, again, they can't get us to obey that. It's like the law professor that says, you can legislate public behavior, but again, you can't touch the human heart. A racist is still gonna be a racist. An addict is still gonna be an addict. The second limiting factor to the law. The law is limited in that you don't need faith to obey the law. The law shows us who we ought to be and yet we can't keep it. But it also doesn't require any faith, only the willpower to obey. But how far does that get us? Not very. You, you don't know how weak you are until you've tried so hard to be strong right? I've been going to the gym since I was 18, and I see this all the time. As long as I've been in the gym, I always think I'm strong until I find that next dude. Y'all know that dude, right? Comes in like, like this, you know? And then you realize, yeah, I'm pretty weak. You don't know how selfish you are until you've tried so hard to care for another person. If you're married, you know this. And also, if you've ever been addicted to anything, you know how hard you wrestle with that when you've tried so hard to stay clean. So the law then becomes a pointer of what it looks like to be righteous. And while we have good days where we feel like we're crushing it, we have quite a few days where it's just not happening. And so what happens on those days where we feel like we're crushing it you know, we give, give ourselves a pat on the back and, and we look at ourselves as being able to accomplish this thing by willpower and obedience and just hard work. We're able to do this. But it's not every day. And it's on those days that we're not crushing it that we end up despairing, we end up hiding. Sometimes we become faithless. It was never meant the law was ever meant to help us obey something. To point to it, yes, but not to obey. But that's why the law was so needed for us. If you think about something like chemotherapy, it's intended to treat illnesses, most notably cancer, right? And, and you take that, and it, what it tries to do is isolate whatever is, you know, a tumor or whatever is out there but it also has some harmful effects to the body, doesn't it, right? If, if you've ever tr like tried to go through cancer or, or going through cancer, if you've ever had to go through chemo, you know what that's like. It's tough. But the purpose is to get better. But in so doing, the chemo also wounds, doesn't it? And so it is with the law. It's pointing to something better, 
but it's also wounding. Which is why the goodness of the gospel is so good, right? Timothy George said it like this, just as law enters that it might fail, so too it condemns that it might save. It's a paradox, but let me try to walk you through this. It's only when the law has condemned us that in our darkest point, when it feels like there's just no light at the end of the tunnel, it's when the rays of the gospel kind of shines through on our hearts and gives us hope and it gives us something that we ourselves cannot do for ourselves and it causes us then to look outside of ourselves to something greater. And so then along comes faith. Paul says that the law served as a guardian in verses 24 and 25. And that the word that's used here is kind of like a a school teacher or a schoolmaster, but it doesn't quite put the right fitting to it. Imagine someone like Mary Poppins, right? Without the song and dance, with the personality of, say, a Jeffrey from, say, Fresh Prince, right? So you take the Mary Poppins tutor with the personality of Jeffrey, and you have what was the law's intention. It meant that it was supposed to show us and to guide us along the way until something better was to come along. Just like a tutor is to train you up to be a child of nobility until you're of age and then you move on to something or someone else. And so the law was intended to do just that. But when faith came, that changed the game. Verse 25. But since faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Why faith? Because when you tried so hard to obey, you only find yourself in despair. Through all of those days where you felt like you were crushing it, you knew that there was quite as many days when you weren't. And it's in that darkness and in that despair, you realize you cannot do this. And so what happens? You look to someone outside of you to do what you could not do for yourself. And that's when Jesus comes. And that's the goodness of the gospel. So Christ Jesus becomes that perfect child on your behalf. The child of God that the law says you have to do in order to become, Jesus says, I am and so I can do this. And so he takes on the law and obeys it perfectly on our behalf. And so then, if that weren't enough, then on the cross, what Jesus does is that he trades in his righteousness for our rags, his righteousness for our filth, and he dies. But he doesn't stay dead because on the third day, what we will celebrate in just over a month's time, he trades in his corpse's linen for clothes of a living person, that he resurrects to new life. And he promises to us that if you believe in me, if you believe in what I've done, then you've earned the right to be a child of God. Not because you deserve it or not because you've done anything, simply by believing Jesus for it. So the law holds out demands and says you have to to be a child of God. Faith holds out nail-pierced hands and says you get to because of what Christ has done for you. Christ has become the perfect child for us. Paul uses this theme of the seed to refer to Christ 
as the only one to inherit the promise. It's, it's almost as if God had put the law in place so that nobody can follow it except one. And that to be Jesus. Remember Moses, right? Remember Moses, the bearer of the law? His charge was to take this law and get the people into the promised land. But of course, even the bearer of the law could not keep the law. And so who was to get them there to the promised land? Y'all remember? It was Joshua. What's interesting about Joshua is that in the Hebrew, it's the same word that we give to Jesus, Yeshua. Y'all see that? That it was never Moses in the law to get us to where we need to be as a child of God. It was always supposed to be a Jesus. So that at the end, all the glory and honor would go not towards the law, not towards ourselves, but to Christ. Verse 27 and verse 28. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So the nations would be blessed, that we all would be children of God through God's promise to Abraham. So that includes you and me. And again, it was through the promise, not through the law. Where the law says you have to, Jesus says you get to. But it's not enough just to believe and have faith. John talked last week about having this generic faith. We just have to have faith. What Faith in what? In Jesus. Jesus, what about Jesus, right? It's not just enough to have faith and believe that we're all children of God. Because the truth is, no one is a child of God apart from Jesus. And nobody is a child of God apart from trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us. What's interesting is, if you look at verse 28, you can go there. It says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are one in Christ. And that might stir up something for, for you. You'd be like, wait, what? Does that mean that God is colorblind? Does that mean he does not see my ethnicity or my gender or my status? Does he not see that? Well, clearly God sees that. Throughout the, the scope of scripture, God says that his eyes are on those that are marginalized, the, the poor and the orphan and the widow. And it was, it was Egypt, right, that was oppressing Israel. And, and Israel uh, was uh, caught, or, or God saw the plight of Israel, right? So he cares for those that are in bondage, that are oppressed. He cares for the marginalized. But I know some people teach this, that when you come to faith, none of that matters, your color, your ethnicity, no, like your status, none of that matters. And to that, I would point to this guy, Jarvis Williams, who would say that's not the case. He says this about verse 28 in particular. He says, Paul, Paul's remarks are shocking, not because he asserts ethnic and social distinctions no longer exist, but because he contends that they do not determine one's status within the Abrahamic family, the kingdom of God. 
Genesis 28 does not support colorblind Christianity. Instead, it promises that regardless of what social, ethnic, and racial identities are, if we are Christians, we are incorporated, incorporated into the family of God and to the household of faith. We are all one in Christ. Not one is better than the other. We all come to the table differently, but we are all at the table. If we believe in Jesus, if we've said, the law is not ours to obey, the law is not ours to fulfill, but Christ alone is who we come to the table. A few exhortations for us, and then I'll close. What does this mean for us? It means that if the good news is so good, and it's the law that could not do for us, then we shouldn't be putting up laws for other people. That we ourselves shouldn't be the people that Paul writes about in Galatians, right? That we should make no distinctions to other people that come into the household of faith. We shouldn't make distinctions over people's ethnicity or social status or even their color, their theology. I know reformers have an interesting time with that. It's almost as though you're not like legit Christian if, you're, if you don't adhere to Calvin or Luther. And we shouldn't make distinctions like that. We shouldn't put a law that someone has to follow in order to be of the children of God. And then two, not only that we should not make distinctions, but we should also nourish our faith and the faith of others. So if the, the promise is being held out and it's the goodness of the gospel, then we ought to be people that nourish our own faith, but also faith in others. So I know we meet up throughout the week, but how often do we encourage one another? How often do we proclaim God's blessing over us and say like, how good God has been for us? How often do we pray for one another? But shameless plug, we do that on Tuesdays. You could join the prayer line where we pray for one another. How often do we encourage one another with reminding them of what God has done for us in Jesus? That it's that that gets us through long days and addiction and hard times and not our willpower or our obedience. The law is limited but necessary. It condemns that we might save. And when we find ourselves condemned, when we find ourselves at the point where we're at the end of ourselves, it's when the gospel kind of breaks forth and it shines in our hearts and we get to see who Jesus is. And so for some of you, maybe you don't know what to think about that. Maybe you're just here. And I would just say to you, if that's you and you feel like you're at the end of your rope, but Jesus makes sense to you, then the scriptures say, you put on Christ, you repent, you turn from your life that you'd been living, and you look to Jesus, and you follow Jesus. And Jesus becomes your path. Jesus gives you the right to be a child of God. So I have the worship team come up.
I want to pray for us and then I'll be at the back if any of you are kind of wrestling with that decision and you're thinking for yourself, this is something that I need to consider. This is something that I want to have a conversation with. Uh, Gordon and myself will be, will be at the back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the law. I thank you that even through the law's limits, we get to see that it was never meant to save, but it was to show us the limits of ourself. I thank you, Lord, that the gospel is so good because Christ does for us what we could not do, that in our despair and our hopelessness, faith came along. And that's through Christ that we all get to participate as children of God. Praise be to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.